Hey, good morning. Uh, if you've got your Bible, make your way to Psalm 139. Psalm uh, 139. If you grabbed one of those black hardback ones on your way in, it's on page 489. And uh, if you did grab one of those Bibles, keep that. That's our gift to you as a church. Uh, now, when COVID first hit a few years ago, we were still living in Wake Forest. And uh, based on kind of talking to some of you uh, who were here at the time, uh, it seems like Wake Forest had a much worse toilet paper shortage than Fayetteville did, uh, and so we pretty quickly started running out of toilet paper. And so for two or three or four weeks in a row on Friday and Saturday mornings, I would spend two or three hours uh, driving around to Food Lions and Walmarts and Targets and all these different grocery stores looking for toilet paper uh, and could not find it anywhere. I mean, sometimes it would be that the uh, toilet paper had been out of stock for multiple days. Other times it would be that they had just restocked and had run out right before I got there. But no matter what it was, uh, I could not find toilet paper anywhere. And so obviously this, this went on for weeks. And so this situation was getting pretty dire. Um, I, we borrowed a few rolls from some friends that had some extra rolls. And then that ran out. And then uh, I found a four-pack of it. really wouldn't even be fair to call it one-ply. It was like half-ply at Walmart. Uh, and then those started to run out, and so eventually Braylon's dad had to ship us a package of toilet paper from Oklahoma uh, because we just could not find it anywhere. And one of the things that was so frustrating about that, one of the reasons it was so frustrating is because it always felt like I was in the right place at the wrong time, that I had made it to the right store that had had it, but I had just missed uh, being able to get the toilet paper. I mean, I even signed up to get notified from a few different stores when they restock their toilet paper, and I'd get the notification, I'd drive straight there, and by the time I had gotten there, uh, they had already run out of toilet paper, and so again, I just could not find it anywhere. Uh, we're in week three of our series on the attributes of God, uh, and this morning we're talking about God's omnis, how God is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnisapient. That means that God is all-present. He's present everywhere. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise. All these ways that God is not like us. Uh, because the toilet paper shortage showed off all of my limits as a human being. I could only be in one place at one time. I couldn't know the future. Uh, I couldn't see uh, where I was not, and so I couldn't find toilet paper anywhere. But, but again, none of that is true when we're talking about God. And, and just like the last two weeks, I hope to show you why that's really, uh, really good news and hopefully help lead us uh, to a deeper worship of God and a deeper trust in Him. And so let's look at the first 18 verses of Psalm 139 together. We'll pray for God's help on our time, uh, and then we'll talk through these attributes. Starting in verse 1, of Psalm 139, the very word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, uh, thank you for the words that we just read, that this is true of you, that you are present everywhere, that there's nowhere we can go that you are not, that there's nothing we can do that you don't know, that you've mapped out and you know every day of our lives. God, thank you that you're not just a bigger version of us up in the sky. You're a God who knows everything, has all power, is all wise, and are always present with us. And so God, help us to believe that. Help us to trust that. Give us clarity this morning as we walk through these attributes and, and seek to get our eyes on you. Would you help us see you? Would you pull away the clouds and the distractions so that we might see you in your glory for as good and as beautiful and as valuable as you are. God, do that among us. I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, first attribute of God we're talking about this morning is God's omnipresence, which means that God is present everywhere at all times and in all spaces and in all Places And that has a few different implications. And so one of those is God's relationship to time. God is omnipresent in relationship to time. Uh, we forget this pretty often, but, but God created time. Time has not eternally existed alongside of God. God created time when He created the world. And so He's not bound to it or limited by it. He exists outside of time because time is His creation. That's different from us because, for example... We experience time as a succession of moments. Now, what I mean by that is that at 7 a.m. this morning, you were stuck at 7 a.m. You couldn't jump back to 10 p.m. last night. You couldn't jump forward to 9 a.m. this morning. You were stuck at 7 and just had to wait for those seconds and minutes to pass until it came uh, to 9 a.m. We are stuck in and bounded by time. We experience time as one moment after another, and we can't jump forward or backward even with a flux capacitor. You know, time travel makes for really great movies and really interesting novels, but it's just not the way we experience reality. We are bound to and limited by the constraints that time puts on us, but that's not the case when we're talking about God. God created time, and so He exists outside of it, and so all times, past, present, and future, are eternally present to God. And so as mind-boggling as this is, The future is not just something that God knows, it's somewhere He already is. Like all times are eternally present to Him because He is not bound to or stuck in one place 
uh, at one time. Uh, This is uh, what Moses says in Psalm 90, verses 1 through 4. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years is like a day to God because he doesn't experience time as one moment after another. All times are eternally present to him, and he exists outside of time. He's not stuck in one time. And so God's omnipresent when it comes to time, but God is also omnipresent when it comes to space as well. God is present, fully present everywhere in all places and all spaces at all times. This is what, God, what David is saying about God in Psalm 139. He's saying, where can I go uh, where God is not? If I grow wings and fly up into heaven in the skies, God is there. If I go down to the depths of the earth, God is there. If I get on a boat and go to the farthest regions of the sea, God is there. If I try to hide in the darkness, well, even the dark isn't dark to God. It's like light to God. God is even present there. God is present everywhere. Now, the reason why this can be true of God is because of what we talked about last week, that God is spiritual. He's not material. God does not have a body, and so he's not limited to the constraints of being in one place and one time that a body would put on him. And so, for example, because you and I, because we have bodies, we are limited to those bodies. We can only be in one place at one time. I'm up here right now, and I can't be back at the back of the room or over in the lobby unless I walk over to one of those places. And if I walk over to one of those places, I can't be up here anymore. You were at your house this morning, and you weren't here at FCA, and you had no clue what was going on here at FCA, and now you're here at FCA, and you're not at your house, and you have no clue what's going on at your house, which is maybe a little bit scary to think about, isn't it? But that's not the case with God. God is present in all places, in all spaces, at all times, fully present everywhere because he's not spatial. He's not material. He's not bound to one place uh, in one space. Now, a few things this does not mean. Uh, We're not talking about pantheism, which says that because God's omnipresent, everything in creation is God. Everything has Uh, the divine in it. And so pantheism would say that these chairs are God, that this pulpit is God, that the trees are God, the ocean is God, that you and I are God because God is present in everything. That's not what we're talking about when we say that God is omnipresent. We're also not talking about panentheism, which says that creation is kind of an extension of God's being, that God and creation are kind of weirdly mixed together because he's present in all of it. No, we are saying that God is utterly and completely transcendent. He's holy. He's distinct and completely different from his creation as the creator, and yet he's imminent. He's near. He's fully present to and with his creation at all times and all places and all spaces while remaining distinct from his creation, not being mixed together, not becoming his creation. And so it's because God is so big and so transcendent and so omnipresent that that David can say, there's nowhere I can go where God is not present there. And, And look, God's omnipresence also means that God is so big 
and so transcendent and so present everywhere that he is able to relate to you like you are the only person in the entire world. God is never checking his watch when you talk to him. God is never worried that he's going to be late to his next appointment when you pray to him. God is never distracted thinking about all that's on his task list that he has to get finished before the end of the day. God is never uh, rushing you. God's never distracted because God is able to be fully attentive and present to you and to me and to everyone else who calls on him because he's not limited to one place and one space and one time. Like You never go to voicemail when you pray to God. That's just incredible news. It's because God is so big and so powerful and so transcendent and so omnipresent that he's able to be so near and so intimate and so personal with us. Now, this also means that that because God is omnipresent, nothing ever falls through the cracks. I, I imagine you probably had to leave a lot of things undone at your house to be able to get here this morning. There might have been dishes that you needed to clean. There might have been stuff around the house that you needed to pick up. There might have been other things that you needed to do, but you had to leave those things undone so that you could get here because you're stuck and limited to one place at one time, and you only have so much time in the day. And so because of that, we have to leave a lot of things undone. But again, that's just not the case when we're talking about God. God never drops one of the plates that he is spinning because keeping the plates spinning really isn't a difficulty for him. Uh, He never has to worry about leaving anything undone. Uh, And the reason why is because not only is God omnipresent, not only is he fully present everywhere, God's also omnipotent. God's omnipotence means that God is all-powerful. Not just that he has a lot of power, but that he is all-powerful. And if you were with us, uh, back when we walked through the book of Genesis, we've seen this in the Scriptures, have we not? Remember uh, Genesis 18, when God comes to Abraham and Sarah, when Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah is 89 years old, and says, next year you two are going to have a son, and Sarah laughs, because that's ridiculous, that's impossible, right? But what does God say in response? He says, why did you laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, the answer is no, nothing is too hard for the Lord, and the Lord proves that by doing just what he had said and giving Abraham and Sarah a son when he is 100 and she is 90 years old. And there's even a greater fulfillment of this in Luke chapter 1 when the angel Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary and says that even though she's a virgin, she's going to give birth to the Son of God. And when she rightly asks, hey, I'm a virgin, how is that going to happen Uh, The angel says it's going to happen because nothing is impossible with God. Nothing's too hard for him. You see, in the Bible, uh, in Scripture, God's power is also tied to creation. As Jeremiah 32, 17 says, it says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You see, God didn't take materials that already existed and just form them and shape them into the world that we see today like a potter does with clay. No, he created everything, everything we see, everything we don't see, out of nothing. He spoke it into existence, and he upholds it by the word of his power, which gives us the confidence that just as God created everything out of nothing, he's able to bring life out of death. He's able to bring life where there is no life previously, 
as Romans 4 says, this gives us hope in the resurrection. This is why we can trust God's power to raise Jesus from the dead and to one day raise us from the dead because He is the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist and gives life to the dead. God's omnipotence means that God can do whatever He wants to in whatever way He wants to, and He can do whatever He chooses to do. So we see God's power in creating everything in the world, but this also shows us God's power in, in the way that He sovereignly rules over and governs and controls everything that happens in the world. As Nebuchadnezzar says uh, in Daniel chapter 4, he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever." For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so Nebuchadnezzar rightly, uh, after uh, God turns him into a beast of the field because of his pride and then uh, brings him back again. Nebuchadnezzar rightly realizes God can do whatever he wants to and he's in complete control of the entire world. And when we're confronted with God's power and sovereignty and control like this, it usually raises two big questions for us. One, if no one can stop God's hand and say to him, what are you doing? Does that mean that we're just robots or puppets on a string that he's just kind of guiding along and then two, if God's all-powerful and He's sovereign over everything, if He's guiding and controlling everything, well then what about evil? Why does He not put a stop to evil? Or does He do evil if He's in control of it? Well, one, no, we are not robots. Remember, God's not just a bigger version of us up in the sky. He's the Creator. We are cre creation. And so we operate on two different planes of being. That's just a really nerdy way to say that, that our will and God's will are not in a zero-sum competition where if we do something, that handcuffs God and He can't act, or if God does something, that handcuffs us and we can't act. No, God is so much greater than us that in some mysterious but real way, God is able to use our freely chosen decisions and plans and purposes that we make to accomplish to ensure that His will and His plans and His purposes always get accomplished in just the way that He wants them to without us being robots or puppets on a string. We make very real decisions, and we do have a sense of free will. We always do what we most want to do. We are not robots or puppets on a string. Now, how you parse all of that out, I'm not entirely sure, but I do know this is what the Bible teaches and holds in tension. God's absolute control and sovereignty over all things on the one hand, and our real responsibility and the real choices we make as human beings on the other. And then two, God's relationship to good and evil. When we talk about God's relationship to good and evil, to quote Matt Barrett, God is equally in control of evil and of good, but we should not assume that he relates to both in the same way. And so what that means is that while God does good, he he uses the freely chosen evil of people to accomplish His good purposes without doing evil Himself. And so, for example, talking about the Assyrians taking the Israelites into exile in the Old Testament, Matt Barrett, again, 
says, God may permit evil, though it's no bare permission. He's in complete control of Satan and Assyria. Nevertheless, God's control is indirect. He uses means. In, in this case, Assyria and Satan. And while those means have only evil or ill motives, God's intentions are for good, to turn Israel uh, away from their idolatry, to cause them to repent and come back to Him. And so, we have to distinguish between the way that God does good and the way that God uses the freely chosen evil of people to accomplish His good purposes and plans. And while we're never going to know in this life all the reasons why God does this, all the reasons why He chooses to allow evil in His world for a time, all the reasons why uh, He has chosen to govern the world in this way, What we do know is that because God is simple, God's power is never a naked display of force or strength. His power is always a wise, knowing, loving, faithful, righteous, holy power. He is governing the world according to His wise power, always acting in wisdom. And so even if we can't see all the reasons why He's doing what He is, that doesn't mean that He doesn't have the good good reasons and He doesn't know what he's doing. He, he does and he is because uh, he is wise. And, and again, all of this, God's omnipotence, it means good news for us because God's power means that there's never a time when you pray to him and him respond with, I really wish I could help, but my hands are just kind of tied on this one. You know, that's just a little bit too much of a tall ask for me. I just don't think I have the resources to make sure that that happens. No, he might, answer, he might not answer a prayer in the way we would like him to, but it's never because he's limited in his power. He doesn't have the capability to do something. It's because of the next attribute that we'll talk about. It's because God is also omniscient. God's omniscience means that God is all-knowing. And his knowledge, this is a perfect knowledge. To borrow a phrase, what God knows now, he has always known and he has known it perfectly. His knowledge does not develop over time. This is what David is saying about his life in Psalm 139. He's saying, God, you know before I sit down, you know when I'm going to get up. Uh, you know my way. You know what I'm going to decide to do. Uh, you saw me in my uh, mother's womb. You saw my unformed substance in my mother's womb. You knew all the days of my life that I was going to live. You know the words I speak before they're even in my mouth. God, you know everything. That's just a sort of knowledge that you and I don't have. right? Because God's knowledge is perfect. It's full. It's eternal. God knows everything that has happened, everything that will happen, Everything that could have happened but didn't, he knows everything. There are no limits to his knowledge. In, Psalm 40, in Isaiah 41, God's comparing himself to idols and mocking them a little bit. And listen to how he compares himself to idols. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what's to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God mocks the idols and false gods of our world, and he says, can you tell us even why the things that have happened in the past, can you tell us the reasons why they've happened? 
Can you tell us anything that's going to happen in the future? Can you do anything? Can you do anything good or bad so that we could at least react to you? No, and that's in contrast to God. Isaiah 46, God knows and declares the end from the beginning. He knows everything, and there's no limits to His knowledge. He knows what will happen. He knows why what has happened in the past, why it happened. He knows uh, what could happen, but didn't. He, again, He knows everything. And, And God's knowledge never increases either. What God has known, He's always known, and He's known it fully. Like, God has never had to learn anything. God has never gone to school. God has never gotten smarter. There's no smarter for God to get. He's already eternally all-knowing. God just knows everything with a perfect knowledge. I mean, can you imagine? God has never had to say, ever. He's never had to say, I don't know. And remember, God is simple, so God's knowledge is a powerful knowledge. He doesn't just know things that He doesn't have the resources to do anything about like we often do. God's knowledge causes things to happen. It is a powerful knowledge, a perfect knowledge. God knows everything. And that leads us to the fourth attribute, omnisapient. Omnisapient means that God is all wise. Now, uh, remember, God's simple. So in in God, wisdom and knowledge are the same thing. God's knowledge is a knowing, uh, is a wise knowledge, and his wisdom is a knowing wisdom. But in our perception, uh, we can distinguish between wisdom and knowledge among human beings. I think all of us know people who are pretty intelligent, who know a lot of facts and know a lot of information, but aren't wise, who don't know how to put that knowledge into practice and don't live Uh, lives faithful to God. All of us know people who are really intellectual but live lives of rebellion against God, and the Bible says those people are fools, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom for us as human beings. And so for us, wisdom and knowledge are distinct, but the good news is that God is both all-knowing and all-wise. So not only does God know everything, He knows what to do with everything that He knows. Like God has never had to scratch his head and give more thought to a problem. God has never had to make a pros and cons list and weigh out the options and decide which is best. God has never had to seek counsel from anyone. And no one has ever counseled him. No one has brought something to him and him respond with, you know, I actually hadn't thought about that before, but that's pretty smart. I should probably give some consideration to that. No, that's just never happened to God. And God has never made a mistake. God's never done anything bad, anything foolish. No, the Psalms say, God, you are good and you do good. And this also means that God rules over everything that he's created in wisdom. Psalm 104 says that God created all things in wisdom. And because he created all things in wisdom, he rules over all things in wisdom. So his power uh, that he governs the world with is a wise power in which he always knows exactly what to do and what is best and how to ensure that everything in the world happens uh, for the good of his people and for his own glory and so that his purposes are accomplished, which, listen, all just means that we can trust him. Again, we're not going to be given all the reasons why 
God is doing something in our lives or God's allowing something to happen in our lives or why God might not have answered a prayer in the way we would have liked him to answer or why God's allowing us to suffer in the way that we might be suffering right now. But what we can know is that there has never been a time in your life when God has taken his hands off the wheel, fallen asleep at the wheel, or ever stopped governing your life in wisdom. Never. And God's God's wisdom means that even when we can't see it, he is always, not just most of the time, always doing what is best for you to accomplish his glory and his good purposes in your life. This is Romans 8, 28. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And so even when we don't see the reasons, we can trust that he's always acting in wisdom and he's always doing what is best in our lives. And these attributes of God just come into even clearer display when we turn to Jesus and the gospel. I remember last week when we were talking about Jesus, we have to remember the hypostatic union, that, that because Jesus has united our humanity to himself, he now exists as one divine person in two natures, divine and human. And so sometimes the Bible's talking about God, talking about Jesus according to his divinity. Sometimes it's talking about him referring to his humanity but it's always talking about the one person of Jesus. And so because this is true, because Jesus at the same time is fully God and fully man, here's the glorious paradox of the gospel. Jesus is able to live within the limits of a fully human life while not being limited to that human life. And so as he lives a human life, as a human being at the same time as God, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. And so, think about how crazy this is. This means when when Jesus, as an embryo, is gestating in Mary's womb, as God, he is upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. When he's a little baby boy learning how to talk, as God, he is still present everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, governing everything in wisdom. And he is able to accept the limits of a fully human life and live a fully human life without being contained to that as God. And so in his flesh, as he lives as a human being, his flesh is not omnipresent. He can't go everywhere in his body. In his human mind, in his human soul, he's not all-knowing. He, he gets hungry. He gets tired. He gets sick. He lives a full and true human life and accepts all of those limitations. Why? So that he could save us. He takes on all that we are so that we could become all that he is, so that we could become by grace what he is by nature, sons and daughters of God. And he shows us who he is as God at times in his ministry. He shows his omnipotence uh, as he works miracles and he raises the dead and he heals lepers and gets rid of sicknesses. And he shows how as God, he's omniscient by at times being able to read other people's thoughts. But the Bible tells us that God's greatest display of knowledge and wisdom and power is when he gets crucified on a Roman cross. God's wisdom and power is shown most clearly on the cross when He saves us sinners in the most surprising way possible. The the cross shows us God's wisdom, that God's wisdom is a gospel wisdom, a wisdom that 
He would take on our humanity, live in that humanity a faithful life, lay it down on the cross to pay for our sins, and then defeat our sins and death in the resurrection. And again, this is God's wisdom. God saves through what looks like weakness and foolishness to the world, but as 1 Corinthians 1 says, the weakness of God is stronger than man, and the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and this is what we glory in. That God would love the rebellious sinners like you and me enough to take on our flesh and our human limitations to save us. I mean, this is crazy. God of the universe took on our human limitation. He went thirsty on the cross so that we would never have to thirst for living water again. He went hungry so that we could be fed with bread from heaven. He slept in His grave so that we could wake up from ours. He died so that we might live. All that He did and suffered as a man, He did for us. And again, this is God's wisdom. It's why we glory in it. The Gospel shows us a God who uses His great power and wisdom and knowledge to reconcile and restore sinners like you and me to Himself. It's just incredible the way that God would do this. But there's also an aspect of God's omnipresence that the Gospel reveals that that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, theologians distinguish between what they call God's essential presence, and so that's what we've talked about, God's omnipresence, where He's present everywhere at all times in all places and spaces, and, and then what we could call God's covenantal or gracious or relational presence, God where He manifests His presence to us in a gracious way so that we might know Him and love Him and have relationship with Him and trust Him and walk with Him all of our days. In, in many ways, the story of the Bible is the story of God drawing nearer to us with His relational presence. How when we rebel and we try to find life outside of Him and when we run away from Him, God pursues. God manifests His res- relational presence to Israel first in the tabernacle and then the temple. It's as if God moves into their neighborhood. And then John 1.14, Jesus, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He manifests His gracious presence by uniting our humanity to Himself. And He lives and He dies and He rises from the dead and He ascends into heaven. And when He ascends into heaven, He pours out the Spirit on His church so that God's relational presence might go with us always. That God Himself might live inside of us through His Holy Spirit and manifest His presence in a gracious way so that we might know Him and love Him and trust Him and walk with Him all of our days. The Gospel gives us this Uh, relational presence, and I want to encourage you and challenge you, this is what we need, and this is what we're called to seek. We are called to pursue a greater depth and intimacy and manifestation of God's relational presence with us. Psalm 105 says, seek God's face always. Seek His presence continually. Psalm 25 says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. God is offering us friendship in the gospel. And we know what that means, don't we? We know the difference. Say right after this, you're in a conversation with two people, and one of those people is just an acquaintance, and then one of those people is one of your closest friends. You'll be having the same conversation with them, saying the same words, uh, doing all the same things, and your close friend is going to pick up on so much more that, that your acquaintance is just going to miss. 
verbal cues, body language, all sorts of inside jokes, all sorts of different things like this that your close friend is going to pick up on and that acquaintance is going to miss out on. Why? It's because you've built up that history and depth of relationship and friendship with that close friend. You've made yourself known to them and they really do know you in a way that that acquaintance does not. The same thing is true in our relationship with Jesus. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, those who trust in Him, those who reverence Him, who give Him weight in their lives and stop looking to themselves and start looking to Him to save them, and He makes known to them His covenant. He opens up His life to you. He reveals Himself to you. He opens up that depth of friendship to you so that you might know Him, not just as a boss, not just as a king, but as a friend. Earlier in Psalm 25, it says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble His way. If you want to have friendship with God, the holdout is not on God's side, it's on ours. If we, sin won't get in the way because Jesus has paid for that, So if we'll simply humble ourselves, turn from trusting in ourselves, and put our trust in Him, He'll open up His life to us, and He'll open up that depth of friendship to us. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And and this is what the Christian life is about, the pursuit of deeper intimacy with God. So again, I want to encourage you, don't settle for anything less. Psalm 73 says, Who do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 16, 11. David says, God, in your presence, there, there is joy forever. In your presence, there are pleasures forevermore. In the gospel, God has opened up his life to us. He has manifested his Gracious, gracious presence to us so that we might have fullness of joy in His presence forevermore. So that we might know Him and walk with Him as a friend. God has opened up His life to you and so make your life about drawing near to God. And how do you do that? Not by going somewhere. Not by making a pilgrimage to Israel. You do it by repenting and believing. Herman Bovink puts it like this. He says, Going to God and seeking His face does not consist in making a pilgrimage, but in self-abasement, that means humbling yourself, and repentance. If we are far from God, we are far from God spiritually, not spatially. And so the way back to God, the way to draw near to God, is to humble yourself, to turn from your sin, and to turn back to Jesus, to say, God, Forgive me for this. Forgive me for trying to find life and freedom and joy outside of you and help me to see, help me to believe that you really are better and more enjoyable and more desirable than this sin. God, help me to believe that. John Owen is really helpful on this. He makes the distinction between our union and our communion uh, with God. So once God saves us, once we are united to Jesus by faith, we are forever united to Jesus and we will never be ununited to Jesus. We will never lose that status uh, as those who are united 
to Jesus. But our communion, our sense of that union and that relationship, that, that can and does change with time. Think of it like a marriage, which is how the Bible compares our relationship as a church to Jesus with. When someone gets married, on the day that they get married, they are as married as they're ever going to be. And that's not going to change, right? It's not like you start off on your wedding day 50% married, and then you hit 100% married once you've been married three years or five years or 10 years or 25 years. You are as married on day one as you're going to be on day uh, 1001. That status is not going to change. But I think all of us know, whether you're married or not, that that relationship, the communion in that marriage, that is going to ebb and flow based on the strength of that relationship. And so sometimes that relationship is going to feel really close and it's going to feel really intimate. And then there are going to be times when it feels really distant and cold for whatever reason, maybe because uh, you're just not communicating well or because you've sinned against one another, or because you're neglecting one another, whatever it may be. Well, the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. We are forever united to Jesus when we put our trust in Him, and we'll never be ununited to Jesus. That's not going to change, but our communion, our sense of relationship with Jesus, that will ebb and flow based on the strength of our relationship. And so, just like if you never talk to your spouse, that relationship's going to feel really cold and distant, if you never spend time with Jesus, listening to Him talk to you in His Word, and then talking back to Him in prayer, man, of course you're not going to feel close to Him. Of course you're not going to know the depths of friendship that He has opened up to you if you neglect to ever pursue that friendship with Him. But again, the good news is that God is not the one who's distant and cold. God is not the one who's holding out. You and I are. And so if we want to draw near to God, if we want to know God as a friend, you don't have to make a big trip. You don't have to move heaven and earth. You just have to repent and believe the gospel again. This is why Martin Luther said that as Christians, our lives are to be lives of repentance. Our whole lives are to be marked by repentance. We don't just turn from our sin and turn to Jesus the moment we first believe for salvation. Every day, we examine ourselves and say, Jesus, forgive me. I again went to this thing and thought this would be better and more satisfying and more enjoyable to you than you. I look to this thing to be and do for me what only you can be and do for me. Please forgive me for that and help me to change. Help me change my heart and change my desires so I can actually see you for who you really are and see that you are better and you are more desirable and you are more satisfying than this sin. Every day, we repent of our sin, we turn from our sin, and we turn back to Jesus. That's how we draw near to God. And if you want just a real practical way to help you in this, a way to step into this, look, because we are sinners, all of us have blind spots. All of us have areas in our lives where we're walking in sin and walking away from Jesus, and we just don't even realize it. We don't even know that we're doing that. And so, and one of the reasons God has given us each other here in this church, uh, in this room, why he's given us each other is to help us see those things. As Hebrews 3 says, to exhort one another every day and encourage one another so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I'll just ask you, is there anyone here in this church, is there anyone in this room that you have given the permission to speak into your life and say, 
hey, you can't talk to her like that. The way you talk to her, that was sinful. That was wrong. You need to repent of that, and you need to apologize to her. Or hey, the, the way you've been acting, you've been showing just a ton of pride lately. Do you see this? Like, this needs to be repented of. Or hey, I, I've noticed a, a lot of increased time on your phone, on social media. Do you really feel like that's what's going to be best for you uh, and for your family? Like, do you, do you have anyone in your life, do you have anyone in this church, here in this room, that you've given explicit permission to, to be able to say, I need you to call me out on my sin and my blind spots and help me follow Jesus? Man, if you don't, I want to encourage you, like, that should change. Probably today. If you're a partner, you've covenanted to this. When you covenanted to be a partner, you covenanted to live a life of holiness and that means, one, we're helping each other live lives of holiness, that, that in Jesus we are our brother and sister's keeper, and we are responsible for one another's discipleship. We are responsible to help each other and make sure that all of us make it all the way home. And that also means that you're opening yourself up to say, I don't see everything. I'm not perfect. i got areas in my life where I'm walking in sin, and I need help to see those. And so a real practical way to step into this it's to give somebody explicit permission to be able to speak into your life in love and say, hey, this needs to change. You've got to repent and come back and believe the good news here. I'll leave you with this. We can have confidence to turn from our sin and turn back to Jesus because the gospel shows us how Jesus' heart has always been turned towards us. God's omniscience, His being all-knowing, means that he went to the cross with eyes wide open. You realize that none of your sin was unknown to God. He saw everything, all that you were going to be, all the ways that you were going to rebel against him, all the ways you were going to think other things would make a better God than him. He saw all of that with eyes wide open and still freely chose to die for you out of love for you and bring you back to himself freely chose to open up this depth of friendship to you. Like, this is what the gospel is offering us. Friendship with the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-wise God of the universe because of the person and work of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done for us. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. Why would you not want that? Why would you not want to get in on that? And don't settle for anything less. Let's make our life about the pursuit of knowing and being friends with God. Let me pray that we would. God, thank You for who You are. Thank You that You are a God who is so big and so transcendent, not like us. Thank You that while we are confined to one space and one place and one time. You are not. God, thank you that, that you just don't have a lot of power. You have all power in the universe. God, thank you that you know everything. That as David said, there's, there's nothing to hide from you, God. And thank you that you know what to do with everything that you know. God, thank you that in your wisdom and your knowledge and your power, what you deemed wisest in this world was to take on our flesh and die for our sins and rise from the grave so that we could be friends with you forever. 
God, thank you for the promise of the gospel that, that really seems too staggering to be true, that, that you have opened up your life to be friends with us. God, what a waste, uh, a life of just pursuing religious activity and going to church to mark off a box would be in place of actually getting to know and be friends with the God of the universe. So God, don't let us settle for anything less. Would you help us to be a church and a people who are eager to pursue you and to make our life a pursuit of knowing you and walking with you all our days? And will you help us as a church to do what we've committed to do and to help one another follow you? Would you help us to in love, encourage one another and exhort one another as long as it's called today that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God, please do so. Please help us to do so. I pray that as we leave this place, we would just be captivated by your goodness and your love towards us. In your name, amen.